0: Broadly speaking, uh, rates of suicide are lower in uh, Muslim-majority countries. The paradox is, data from the United States, just last year, people who identified as Muslim were twice as likely to have attempted suicide than the the next nearest group, which was people who identified as Protestant. So that's an interesting paradox. What we know is a person is often feeling a burden on those around them often emotionally exhausted, especially in the context, say, of, of uh, really struggling with depression or, or whatever the mental health problem might be. On top of that, what's some of the, one of the characteristics of the suicidal mind is this idea of tunnel vision, or call it, we call it cognitive constriction. So you can't see alternatives. But that other consequence of that sort of tunnel vision is you can't see the impact, the devastation that will be left, left behind if you're in the depths of a suicidal episode and, and you feel the, that there is no hope, you feel trapped, um, it can be really difficult to see beyond the time when things will be better. But please, please hold on because I can tell you from years and years of experience, those times do pass, the suicidal thoughts do relent. So please hold on. Now, if you have somebody who said, a long history of mental health problems and, and you've been seeking different treatments and they don't work, please keep trying. Because again, the number of times, it's like anything else, it's, we have to try things. Some things work for some of us, some things work for others. When you're in a suicidal crisis, the mind's playing tricks on you. It's trying to get you tunnel visioned and you're focused in on suicide as a, as a solution to your problems. Suicide is never the solution. If you are concerned about somebody please ask them, ask them directly. It's a difficult question to ask whether somebody is feeling suicidal. But again, anecdotally, and the research tells us that often the person who's feeling suicidal, if somebody has asked them the question, perhaps it's the first time, A, that somebody's ever asked them the question, and B, the first time they've ever admitted to being suicidal, and often the sense of relief, because it's this burden which has been hopefully shared with somebody else. and it's not your responsibility to solve that person's problems, but it's to be there to be validate what they might be experiencing. Research has shown that by asking that question, that it increases the likelihood that somebody may get the help that they need. So rather than being a risk factor, it's a potential protective factor. The one, the one thing, the one certainty about grief following suicide is its unpredictability. And that some days things will be absolutely fine, and then other days they won't be. Some moments will be absolutely fine. The next moment, something triggers you, and like anniversaries or special days, or something which just reminds you of the person. And I think that's okay, that's part of the grief process.
1: Assalamualaikum and welcome to the Muslim Centric Podcast. Thank you once again for joining us. This episode is different to our usual ones because I wanted to have a conversation that is crucially important but often is not addressed enough in wider society, especially the Muslim community. As you know, I'm a psychiatrist based in Scotland so I see people with suicidal thoughts, urges and impulses every day i fortunate that we have a world leading expert on suicide research and prevention in Glasgow. So I was delighted when Professor Rory O'Connor agreed to meet me for a discussion for this podcast. Rory is a professor of health psychology at the University of Glasgow and leads the Suicidal Behaviour Research Laboratory. He's been working on suicide research for over 25 years and is the president of the International Association for Suicide Prevention and past president of the International Academy of Suicide Research. He has authored the best-selling book, When It Is Darkest, Why People Die by Suicide and What We Can Do to Prevent It, and it was published in May 2021 and is easily available. It addresses the many questions, myths and misunderstandings of suicide. In this episode, I ask him about the trends we are seeing amongst those who do, die by suicide, patterns in the context of ethnicity and religiosity, celebrities and young people. I refer to some recent examples in the public domain to illustrate some of the issues. We also discuss how to help yourself or a loved one who may be suicidal. I really appreciated Rory's honesty and openness when discussing his own experience of those who have died by suicide. I'll post relevant links in the episode notes, including where you can ask for help. Please do let me know if you've benefited from this episode. And remember, you can leave a comment on YouTube or on Apple podcasts as it helps other people find the show. So take care of yourselves. And until next time, Asalaamu Alaikum wa Rahmatullah. So welcome, Professor Rory. Um, Thank you so much for giving us a bit of time today. We're here at Glasgow University. one of the brand new buildings or one of the newer buildings, uh, I think, where a lot of your work is going on. So thank you so much for taking time to have a wee conversation with me. Now, as you know, I'm, I'm a psychiatrist, but I'm going to kind of slightly take off my psychiatry hat, but I'll probably, you know, maybe share some of my own experiences because you're the expert in our topic, which is quite a sensitive topic, which is about suicide. Um, and can you maybe just say, before we start this conversation, you know, there's always, the usual preface about self-care and self-awareness and dealing with a controversial or, or and a difficult topic. Um, what kind of advice do you tend to give people before listening to this k- kind of conversation what sort of things we might talk about today?
0: Well, I'm delighted to be here. First of all, um, thanks for the invitation. I'm, in, I'm delighted to hopefully share some of the knowledge and work that we've been doing over the last, well, in my case now, 28 29 years. Um, But as you highlighted, it is such a sensitive topic, and and I suppose for me, the advice I always give people is that everybody has got their own experience of suicide, either directly or indirectly, either they've known somebody who's died by suicide or, or who's been struggling with a suicidal crisis, or who's caring for somebody who's suicidal, and we all, of course, have our own mental health as well, and so it's really important when we are discussing topics like this that we do prioritize self-care and recognize that actually this could be difficult for you. And if it is, please, please, I would encourage people, if you're listening to this and you find it difficult, take a break. Um, but also, I think it's my experience over the years for countless um, podcasts or engagement in the, with people in the public is I find it really interesting in the sense that, because often we have, there are many myths around suicide. And I think having these conversations, although they're difficult, can help us challenge and hopefully smash many of those myths around suicide. So I hope it's a really informative conversation we're having today. And But yeah, that self-care, that self-compassion is really, really important.
1: And I'll certainly share kind of links that people can access um, if they do need help in terms of our episode notes as well. Um, and you're, you're, you're a worldwide kind of expert on suicide and research. And I was telling you a little bit earlier on that m- my main audience tends to be around Muslims and ethnic minorities. So you're you're aware of that kind of context. Um, so you're a pre- professor of health psychology at the University of Glasgow. And a lot of the themes that we'll talk a bit about is uh, from your book that you authored, I think published in 2021, When It Is Darkest, Why People Die by Suicide and What We Can Do to Prevent It. Um, I mean, do do you think one of the main myths or one of the things people wonder about is if you talk about suicide, it becomes more likely that somebody who might be thinking about it, you know, it might egg them on. What what do we know about that? And what's your kind of advice around talking about it? Because I think if there's one key thing, I guess, that people take away is about awareness and and being able to talk about it. But what's what's your view on that?
0: No, absolutely. It's such an important point you've raised already. And I suppose before I answer that directly, maybe in the context of the book, you mentioned the book, um, during COVID, I I wrote When It's Darkest, and it was my attempt to try and synthesize, synthesize at that stage, the last 25 years of working in the field of suicide research and suicide prevention, but crucially bringing together personal reflections. My personal experiences of being bereaved by suicide myself, as well as the countless people I've met in my journey who've either been suicidal or died by suicide but to bring that together with the research evidence. And early on in the book, as you, as you highlight the, sort of the myth, there are myths, a lot of myths in the book, I talk about 14 myths around suicide. And one of them is precisely that question that you raised. And it's this idea that's, that it's still so common that people believe that if you talk about suicide, it's like it will plant the idea in the mind of somebody and increase the likelihood that they'll die by suicide. There's absolutely no evidence for that. That is a complete and utter myth. And indeed, there's evidence for the contrary, for the opposite. There's evidence, research has shown that by asking that question, that it increases the likelihood that somebody may get the help that they need. So rather than being a risk factor, it's a potential protective factor. So, So I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast today, if you are concerned about somebody please ask them, ask them directly. It's a difficult question to ask whether somebody is feeling suicidal. But again, anecdotally, and the research tells us that often the person who's feeling suicidal, if somebody has asked them the question, perhaps it's the first time, A, that somebody's ever asked them the question, and B, the first time they've ever admitted to being suicidal. And often the sense of relief, because it's this burden which has been hopefully shared with somebody else. And it's not your responsibility to solve that person's problems, but it's to be there to validate what they might be experiencing because too often people who are suicidal have experienced trauma early in life or have experienced other life difficulties in which they haven't been validated. Their emotions haven't been validated. And actually be somebody asking that question. And first of all, you feel as if it's worth, I'm worth something that somebody's asked me that question. And when I talk about validation, it's just recognizing and reflecting back to the person, that must be really difficult for you. I, I really feel your pain. And and yes, and maybe try and encourage them to go and seek help if, that, if that's appropriate. So again, it's really important, validation, compassion, but it's not your responsibility to, to solve their problems. And indeed, you're sitting here across with me as a psychiatrist is maybe going to a mental health professional, go to your GP, phone a helpline, whatever it seems appropriate to you, but it's that, Taking action is what saves lives. Conversations, these can be the start of potentially life-saving conversations.
1: And is there, from your experience or your advi- uh, advice, is, is there a certain way of how you ask about that? Should you use the word suicide or do you use abstract terms? I mean, in your experience, what, how would you advise somebody that doesn't know actually how, what's the language yeah. I should use when I, I need to ask my friend or my family member about suicide?
0: Be direct. So again, the evidence suggests that Try and not use euphemisms. Um, be just by direct. Be direct. I would say something like, are you thinking about ending your life? Are you thinking of killing yourself? Um, or, uh, and you could start with, are you struggling? And then frame it then with that direct question about having suicidal thoughts. Uh, because I think if you, if you use these euphemisms, if I can get the word out correctly, often that, that's conveying a sense of maybe stigma as well. So if, you, if you're direct, you're trying to hopefully normalize that conversation and say it's okay to talk about these things because it's through talking about them is the first step, it's not the whole solution. So my advice is very simply, if you ask directly, and as long as you're compassionate, non-judgmental, and as I mentioned already, that sense of validation, just reflecting back to the person, that must be really difficult for you. And it's that sense of human connection, because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to use your sense of human connection to reach out to somebody who's potentially in distress. And if you bear in mind that often somebody who's suicidal, for many it's hidden, we don't see the outward signs of the mental turmoil. And often they're feeling a burden on those around them. Their self-esteem is often at rock bottom. They maybe feel a sense of shame or rejection or loss. And so you can imagine it can be very difficult to maybe overcome all of the barriers which maybe prevented them from talking about suicide or reaching out previously. So what we're trying to do is a human being to human being is reduce all the barriers so hopefully somebody feels comfortable that they're willing to share what is really a deep and personal communication.
1: And, and I think it's really important what you said was the person actually might experience a degree of relief or, you know, it might actually really, you know, that burden of being able to just share it with somebody and say actually... Because I guess the person themselves might find it difficult to be articulating or making sense of what's going on because their mind might be in a certain state of mind that they're struggling. And so that kind of opening that door for somebody might be really, really helpful for them and um, compassion. I guess it's just how comfortable we feel about asking those questions, isn't it? And it's about, because you probably might not, if you unless you're working in the profession, not come across many people in your life that you are that worried about, or maybe you are, you know, I think.
0: Well, I mean, I think what's interesting, in my experience over the years now, because of the nature of the work that I do, I suppose I've probably asked that question more often than most, I mean, amongst friends and colleagues. Um, uh, and and what certainly I've come to really believe is that there are many, many more, more people who struggle with suicidal thoughts than we think. And so the opportunity, and maybe the potential opportunity for asking that question could be for any one of us. So yeah, it is, I don't dispute for a second that it's a difficult question to ask. And actually your biggest fear when you ask that question is the person comes back and says, yes, I am suicidal. And if that comes back as yes, again, I would just reaffirm this point about all all you're needing to do in that sense is not solve the problems, but just contain them, validate them, reflect back to them what they might be feeling. And then it's trying to think about both two minds working together to go, okay, how can we, get you the help you need, if it's a GP, uh, psychiatrist, a helpline, somebody else. It depends what's causing, <clears throat> excuse me, the factors which are leading to the suicidal crisis. But yeah, and then I suppose the other thing is that there are there are resources out there to help you ask those questions. So one place I talk about it in my book, and I'm not trying to plug my book, but we do describe, uh, describe in the book how you might ask those questions. But again, uh, the, in Scotland, for example, we've got Public Health Scotland, and if you Google on Public Health Scotland, the Art of Conversation, I think it's called, and it's a, it's a guidance around asking questions about suicide. So I'd really encourage anybody to seek that free guidance that's online. Um, and yeah, but just be, a, I think the last bit I'll say on this is, just think about, and I often try and do this is, think about how the, what, what, what it must feel like if you're suicidal and try and put yourself in the place of the person who's suicidal and what you, what you would want in that circumstance. And what you're looking for there, I would imagine, and certainly what I look for when I think about that, is somebody to, to treat me with compassion, and that sense of recognizing that the part of the human condition, for many, is mental, mental distress. And for most of us, that mental distress doesn't lead to suicidal crises. But, but for some, sadly, it does. And, and, and there's different statistics out there. So for example, we did some work In Scotland here, uh, we did a national survey of young adults across Scotland, and it's about 20% of young adults will have thought about suicide. And as many as 20%, also, upwards of 20%, could also have have engaged in self-harm, and fewer than that would have attempted suicide. But still, what it it gives an index in that young adult population is the amount of distress out there. And, And I think, moving forward, my concern is that, especially for young people, Young people have gone through a really difficult period in COVID. So although the suicide rates didn't increase during COVID, which is really, really reassuring, the rates of mental distress, mental health problems, the rates of suicide attempts, suicidal thoughts, did increase. And I think even before COVID, and you'll have seen this yourself in in the psychiatry mental health field more broadly, is that we know before COVID, young people's mental health was deteriorating. It was getting worse. And then we have just gone through COVID where they, their lives really were disrupted. And now we've got a cost of living crisis. And so there's so much going on. So my fear is we've re- already had started to see an increase in suicide rates amongst young people before COVID, then it was either flat or reduced a bit during COVID, but sadly the increase has started to back up again and, and across the UK and in the United States and Australia and other countries. So my hope is these sorts of conversations will help remind us that this is such a a really important topic, is that the suicide rate sadly might be creeping back up again, and young people are a big risk group.
1: And when you say young people, what sort of age group are you kind of thinking of?
0: Well, I'm thinking right up to the the age of 25. So if you think about the the adolescence, so the, the World Health Organization tells us now that adolescence is right up to the age of 25 because we know that the brain is still developing. And again, if you look at um, the the rates of suicidal behaviors, uh, right up to that age group, you're starting to see that increase. But there's also a concern of even younger though, there's a concern that although every suicide is an absolute tragedy um, and the rates of suicide in say the the early teens in, in terms of absolute numbers is low. There has been this increase so it seems as if suicidality may, be, may have got younger, a bit younger, and, and that's something we don't quite understand yet. So it's really important we take that lifespan approach and do as much as we can in early life because all the evidence in the world shows us that early life trauma, it doesn't matter how you talk, or operationalize it, describe trauma or adversity in early life, the vulnerability that conveys through those, not just in the early years, but throughout the lifespan. So that trauma kids because obviously it impacts on relationship building, on attachment relationships. We've also done work on how it impacts on your stress response system and your body, and how your body actually releases cortisol later in life, which then is a sort of another vulnerability factor for suicide and mental health problems. The perinatal period as well, there's now growing evidence of risk in the perinatal period as well. So for me, I think we need to really focus in on not just in when the child is born in those first year or two, but it's that, those early phases of life. And I think one thing I really, really hope as we, we look forward now to, if we take a UK context for a second, and hopefully there's gonna be an election next year, and there's maybe, well, maybe there might be um, a change in focus or change of government, but whoever's fighting that election, we need to prioritise mental health and early intervention. Early intervention has been decimated over the last 15 years or 13 years of, under the current administration, if you look at UK-wide, and we need to really prioritise that.
1: Do these kind of public health campaigns kind of work? Because in Scotland there was the See Me campaign, certainly when I was in training, which was, you know, there was a lot of publicity, etc. Do we know that there are public health, health campaigns that do make a difference?
0: Yeah, yeah, they're all part of the complex puzzle of suicide prevention. So we think about suicide prevention we can talk about the universal interventions, which are things like public health campaigns, but we have to also think about get people getting treatment and support when they need, so that, sort of, that targeted response. But the evidence would suggest that campaigns, those sort of mental health awareness campaigns, there's no evidence that they prevent suicide in and of themselves, because I mean that would be a, be a really big ask. But there is evidence that they, that they can help us monitor and track um, awareness of, uh, places of support, they, they, there's evidence that they are associated with destigmatization of mental health. I remember in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s in Scotland we used to, and this is before the See Me campaign I think, but we used to monitor every two years the mental health, it was like a public health or mental health awareness um, of the population. And what we were able to track was that people, the people's awareness of mental health campaigns had increased. Uh, their awareness, for example, of suicide prevention resources had increased. Their sense of um, challenge and stigma and being uh, associated with mental illness and mental health problems decreased. So, so there is evidence that those campaigns are part of that, but it's only one part of the puzzle.
1: And just thinking about the demographics that you spoke about, so there's certainly, if uh, you're seeing young people, small, smaller numbers, but maybe an increasing trend, which we need to be very mindful of. Um, and I guess there's another peak later on in life and stuff. and uh, can you tell us a bit about who else is you know vulnerable to suicide?
0: Well, the, the first thing they state is suicide can and does affect people across the lifespan. and if we just try and give a lifespan perspective that suicide rates are very rare before puberty, and then if you go through puberty, <clears throat> excuse me, as you go through pubert- puberty, the suicide rates increased, at the fastest rate of increase at any stage in the lifespan. It's going through puberty through to your early 20s. And then if you look at the other peaks, as you say, middle age, so our our challenge at the minute across the UK, including Scotland, is the the highest risk of suicide is amongst middle-aged men. So I'm sad to say, yourself and myself, we're in that risk group. And so what we think has happened there is we've carried our risk with us. So when I started out researching suicide in the mid-1990s, the biggest risk group, our biggest concern were young men. So people in our age group in the 90s. And it seems as if we've carried our risk with us. And so now, as I say, sadly, middle-aged men are the biggest risk group. And indeed, over 70% or 75%, depending what statistics you look at, of all suicides across the UK are men. And I think that's a really important message is because um, if we think about then what, what what's the evidence for what works for suicide? Like so, for example, you're as a psychiatrist and you may be offering treatments, psychological or psychosocial treatments. And so there's growing evidence, that it's so cognitive behavioral therapy or interventions like that. There is evidence that they reduce suicidal behavior, but we don't know whether they work for men. Because the, the research evidence, the, the trials, the clinical research, there haven't been large enough samples for us to work out actually. Does that work for men as well as women? Because most of these clinical trials, sadly, or not not sadly, but in the context of understanding suicide risk, or male suicide risk, there are more women in these trials than men. So we know they work overall, and we know they work for a woman, but we don't know whether they work for men. And if you think about that, I mean, that's startling, given that almost three quarters of all suicides are by men. And and that that, that statistic, or that fact, holds for all of the psychosocial interventions. and similarly, I think if you look at the evidence base for antidepressants, I don't know it as well. But, but again, there's evidence that, obviously, that's, that that's, um, antidepressants are effective, obviously, for treatment of depression. But if you look more broadly for the, for the treatment of suicide and male suicide risk, I think the jury's still out.
1: And, and are you saying there's also a peak for middle-aged women, but it's mainly men? Well, so, they, <clears throat>
0: uh, so the peak, they're, they're about the same. So middle-aged people, are at increased risk, but overall, but the, if you look, it's, but the, you don't see the peaks in the same way because the numbers, absolute numbers of, of women taking their own lives are obviously, is, is much, much lower. So it's very, for example, in Scotland then, it's very difficult for us to, especially year on year, to look at particular patterns because the absolute numbers, even though every death is a tragedy, the absolute numbers are low. So seeing trends in an individual year is difficult. But yeah, but the, so you still see that same idea though of, the, the um, young woman certainly, in terms of uh, that increase in non-fatal suicidal behaviour, is, is a real concern, and of suicides, and then across the lifespan as well.
1: And and this particular focus on middle-aged men, um, do we have clues why that you know that there's a peak at that point, or why it increases during that stage?
0: Well, so that's a, that's a great question, and another thing which continually startles me is. So you would have thought that we would know loads and loads about male suicide, given that actually in almost every country in the world, men outnumber women on suicide and deaths by suicide. And so over the last couple of years, we've we've, we've done two systematic reviews. So, <clears throat> so systematic reviews are when we look at the worldwide evidence of uh, what we, in this case, what we understand about male suicide risk. And during COVID, uh, led by a colleague, Cara Richardson, we published... Um, all the quantitative studies, all the studies looking at the numbers and rates and so on and risk factors. And, um, and what we found was there actually, if you look at studies which are predicting suicide in men over time, there were very few studies, very, very few studies. And, and indeed, more recently, actually just the last couple of weeks, we published a review of all of the evidence for qualitative studies, when you actually studies which are about asking men who have been suicidal, why do they, why they become suicidal? Or speaking to people who have been bereaved by male suicide. And so what really struck us was, in, to answer your question is, there's no one simple answer um, why, in terms of understanding that male suicide risk. Right? But in part, it's to do with our sort of conceptualizations of masculinity. And that we, this really come out of the qualitative, the interview sort of synthesis we did, and because I think we live in a world in which um, what it is to be, the ideals of what it be, is to be a man are often, that masculinity is about being self-sufficient, not reaching out for help, being a breadwinner, um, being strong, not, not showing vulnerability. And so those are all, th- those characteristics arguably are not necessarily going to support you or protect you as a man if you encounter adversity. and, and and so there's part about we need to really challenge our models of masculinity. There's definitely evidence related to that, that men are more likely, or less likely sorry, to seek help for mental health problems than women. But again, we need to understand what, what, are the, what are the reasons for that? And so coming back to my point about like so the psychological treatments, not knowing they work for men, for me a more fundamental question is have we developed supports or interventions which are tailored to the needs of men? And the short answer is no, we haven't. We're, we're doing that more, we're trying to do that more and more, but we really need to understand, like what, what is a, the best intervention model to support men? That traditional model of expecting a man to go to see a clinician, say, that's an old fashioned model. We need to look at new ways of, of working and engaging with men. And part of that new ways of working is actually asking men so we can then develop the interventions test and gather the evidence to see what works. And so there's great evidence, for example, for physical health. That's, so in, We're Glasgow here, as you mentioned at the start. And so colleagues here in the School of Health and Wellbeing have developed the Football football Fans in Training Programme, which is this idea targeted at physical health, and they work with the football clubs across Scotland and the football fans. So If you're a fan of Hearts, you would go to Hearts or Hibernian, whoever the club is, and you would, do, you would do an intervention about, or, no, it wasn't a weight loss intervention. It was an intervention which had lots of different elements, but it, it was associated with reduced or increased weight loss 12 months after the intervention. And so, but what they did there, they very cleverly worked with the men, they worked out what, what do they need or want, what are they gonna engage with? And if this is a brilliant intervention, there's new way, there's things going on with rugby clubs and also now with football clubs trying to say, can we do something similar with mental health Use the identity in this context of being a football fan or a rugby fan or a cricket fan or whatever it might be and trying to harness that. So I think we really need to look differently so that we can understand what are the real barriers to men not seeking help. And, and then related to that, the other sort of part of the puzzle of answering the question of male suicide rates is that sadly, men tend to use more lethal methods of suicide. So it means that, sadly, that if they engage in suicidal behavior, they're more likely to die. And so that's part of it. But I think um, we need we need to not stop or move away from simplistic explanations for male suicide. And then one other thing, I suppose, is our relationship with drugs and alcohol in different populations of our country. And again, we know that anything which interferes with our basic, and sort of medical terms, our basic psychosocial or, or um, homeostatic functions, sleep, anything that interferes, interferes with sleeping, eating, that's not good for your mental health and your and as well as your physical health. And then sadly, drugs and alcohol can impact on those. Anything which impacts on your sleep is poor for your mental health because we need sleep to be good problem solvers. We need sleep to be good emotion regulators, and we need to be sleep. We need sleep to be good decision makers. Three key components we think about mental health and suicide.
1: Now that's fascinating and it's really helpful to kind of get that broad, broader overview. Um, if we can just come down to I guess individual situations as well. Um and I'm thinking particularly around language and 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 definitions and terminology. For people that don't know the difference between, I guess, deliberate self harm and suicide, sometimes people will put them all in the kind of the same same bracket. Can you maybe speak a little bit around the relationship between the two? What is the difference? And does if you self harm, does that mean you're suicidal, et cetera, et cetera? What's
0: Yes, that's an important question. But again, the answer is, is more complicated than people would sometimes think. So if we take a UK context, in the UK, we talk about self-harm as this umbrella term, which incorporates, or under that umbrella, is all forms of self-injury with or without suicidal intent. And, and the reason we in the UK we've adopted that broad approach is because often it's very difficult to ascertain suicidal intent. It also depends who's asking the question. So in our research studies, for example, we, we find many occasions that if we ask somebody about the motives that underpin, un, underpinned an episode of self-harm, we get a different answer compared to when a clinician, a psychiatrist asked that question. And, and also the motives that underpin an episode of self-harm can change over time. And they can change even from the start of an episode to the, if you ask them at the start of an episode, what did they think versus at the end of, that, of an episode. So for that reason, recognizing that complexity, when, we, when people talk about self-harm, well, when I talk about self-harm, I mean both suicidal, what we think when there's suicidal intent, versus when there's not suicidal intent. Now, if I look to colleagues in the United States, they don't, they're not as much in favor of this self-harm definition is all-encompassing definition. And so they tend to differentiate between what they describe as non-suicidal self-injury versus suicide attempts. And as the names suggest, the suicide attempts when there's clear evidence of some evidence at least, what we, we sometimes describe as non-zero evidence with at least some evidence of suicidal intent, and that's described as a suicide attempt. And then the, the non-suicidal self-injury is clearly then when the motive is the absence of suicidal intent. Now, we, in the research that we do, we do a mixture of both approaches. And for me, what's most important is, first of all, yes, recognise the behaviour, but then again, try and just understand what are the complex set of motives. So there's never just going to be one motive. And um, and so for so if you're a clinician working with somebody who's having self or episodes of self harm or thinking about self harm, it's trying to understand what are the motives and function of that behaviour. Now the relationship between self-harm and suicide, is also complicated. So in essence, um, statistically, if if somebody engages in any form of self-harm, irrespective of motive, irrespective of whether they're explicitly suicidal or not, their lifetime risk of suicide is increased. So it's an important risk factor. Now, it's really important to put that in context. That's a statistical increase in risk. The overwhelming majority of people who self harm, say, say in adolescence, will never self harm again after that episode, and will never ever die by suicide. And so again, some of the evidence would suggest is about between five and ten percent of people who self harm over the lifetime over the lifetime may die by suicide, and but that's over the lifetime. The risk, the risk of of suicide, for example, after within 12 months of a hospital episode, a hospital treated episode of self harm is about 1%. Yeah.
1: Okay. So that's really helpful. And um, I wanted to just maybe move on to one thing that you spoke about early on in, in right at the beginning of your book in terms of the introduction, what drew you to this area of research? Um, and then I'll maybe speak about some specific examples. Um, for people that haven't read your book, can you share that, and particularly, I was struck by your mum's response as well, in terms of, you know, you kind of, I don't know whether it's fair to say you fell into this area of research, or it was kind of just opportunistic or, and then so just tell us a bit about your journey in terms of, um, and how you've kind of looked after yourself, because, you know, the when, particularly when you draw, you know, deal with difficult experiences, difficult issues, trauma, et then uh, the a clinician, researcher, et cetera. you have to look after yourself as well, isn't it?
0: No, absolutely. And um, you, know, the, 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 you mentioned the, my mum's response, which I think is the opening line of, yeah. my, of my book. And so as I mentioned earlier, I mean, so my sort of history in this work goes back to the mid-1990s. And, and yeah, so my mum's reaction was her biggest fear when I said I was, I was going to do a PhD on suicide was, you're not gonna kill yourself, are you? And, and that, again, that's an understandable response and I can totally get why she was saying that. And it's part because I everything I do, I've always put my heart and soul into it. I'm a very passionate person. And her concern was I would just just immerse myself completely and not look after myself. And, and I, I have immersed myself completely in it, but I suppose I do, um, more recently I would say I've looked at through my sort of self-care um, and, and I'll come back to the self-care in a second, but um, and again, I talked about my own experiences and when I started out, so I did a, I did a undergraduate degree at, in Queen's University in Belfast on psychology and it was work on depression. And I was, my plan was to do a PhD on depression. But it is funny how you sort of serendipitous things, are, things happen. Um, and then out of the blue, I think it was the summer of 1994, I'd already enrolled to start a PhD in, in depression that following autumn. And like I got a call that summer from the person who turned out to be my PhD supervisor saying, there's potential funding for a PhD on suicide. Is this something you might be interested in? And so after a bit of reflection, I just jumped at the chance. And to me, because it, it was the obvious, in so many ways, the obvious next step for me. The, the most devastating outcome from depression, of course, is is suicide. And But I suppose a sad sort of, Reality then is that person, the person who was my PhD supervisor, he then went on uh, many years later to take his own life. And, 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 that's, and that's been really, really difficult for me because um, I often wonder why, because why, he, he, he had no experience of doing work on suicide beforehand, so I often wonder, and I'll, I'll never know the answer to that question of, why did he, well, why did he seek out a PhD on suicide, and, and and then just it really was serendipitous that I he ended up asking me, and um, and I f- will be forever grateful to him. It me changed the course of my life, and I certainly wouldn't be sitting here today talking about it w- without his intervention. And and I and I think for me it's important to reflect on my own personal experiences, and, and in the book I also talk a lot about um, losing a very very close friend of mine to suicide, and that's. Utterly devastated me, and and still, uh, still devastates me to this day. And we worked very closely together. We did our PhDs together. We're really good friends. And and I suppose for me that um, that was in 2008, and that was whatever some years into me doing my work on suicide. And I remember thinking I'd let the, her down. I'd let the whole family down. I was meant to be this so-called expert. Um, and I genuinely didn't know if I could continue doing it because literally every day, yeah, I would say almost without exception, every single day since 1994, I've been thinking about suicide. And that, so for me then, all those thoughts about my work were of course then I mean, intrinsically related to Claire's death. And but, I, but thankfully I was able to continue and I think that's what Claire would have wanted. Um, and I think that's given me Well, hopefully, a better sense of. um, I mean, I I I used to think I knew what it was like to be bereaved by suicide, and what because I mean I've I've just been so immersed in this area, but I suppose with the experience of Claire and then Noel's death, they were within within three years. um, I I know my experiences are so different from what I'd anticipated they might have been like, and. And, um, and so what I've tried to do is bring those experiences into everything I do. Um, and so, yes, I'm this sort of objective scientist, but at the back of it, for me, it's not about the science. That's the bedrock. It's how you translate that science into saving people's lives. That's the reason I get up every single day to do what I do. And if, if I can, the work that I do, and it's me, I'm only one person that lead a team. It's a real team effort. If the work that we can do can save one person's life, that's enough for me.
1: No, and thank you for being so honest and sharing that with us. I know it's really hard to speak about some of these experiences, but as you said, I think it will help others, and it's really important people know kind of, you know, other factors and motivations, and I think, particularly for people on the other side where, you know, as you said, researchers and clinicians, you're trained to be objective and, and and that's valuable, but you can't always separate your own personal experiences and life experiences. And I guess it's trying to turn that into something that then is productive and meaningful. You spoke about being bereaved by suicide and there's a few examples I want, I'd like to share. So it's not people that I've been directly um, experienced suicide from, but it's people that I know uh, quite close. So just one, d- one degree removed, really. And so there was one recent case of a family friend that um, died by suicide. And there were various family members that went and spoke to them just in the immediate kind of days before that. And since then, they've been obviously trying to support each other because I guess it's thinking, what could I have done differently? the guilt, the shame, etc. And what words of advice would you give these people? Because I think there is that massive, you know, and each situation is different, but I think they are racked by that. Did I miss something? Could I have done something else? Should I have escalated? And and we know hindsight is always a lot easier to say, you know, uh, to look back, but at the time it can be incredibly difficult. And So people that are kind of going through that, that have lost people through suicide, where there's close family members or friends, I mean, how do they kind of navigate that experience and yeah, I mean, get through life? You
0: know? Yeah, and that's something I've thought a lot about, and um, and, and we look at the research evidence. Which I've, again, I've, again, the book we try and bring this, I try to bring this together. I think for me, the first the first piece of advice is that we can never, as an individual, be held responsible for the actions of somebody else. And so, I think for me, that's a really important message to hold on to. And secondly, I think there's something around, so recognizing that your feelings are normal reactions, are guilt, shame, the loss. There's something particularly devastating about a suicide death. So part of it is a bit of self-care, self-compassion, uh, self-kindness, actually recognizing that your feelings, so you will, you will, will be really angry with the person and then also really guilty. So there's lots of these emotions swirling around, and and for me again, again speaking to lots of people who've been bereaved by suicide, I think what we need to think about is, so it's not about you, you'll be forever changed as a person. I think it's important to acknowledge that you're not the person you were before it happened. And it's and I heard some a, a father who was bereaved by suicide a few years ago talked about this idea, and I really like this idea of. It's not about moving on. It's about moving forward, and that's a really important distinction because because um, it acknowledges that this event, this awful event, has happened. But how you how you manage that moving forward is different. It's different, but it's not moving on. It's not forgetting about the person, and so and then the other bit I would the other bits I would say would be it's also remembering that the one the one thing the one certainty about grief following suicide is its unpredictability and that some days things will be absolutely fine and then other days they won't be some moments will be absolutely fine the next moment something triggers you and like anniversaries or special days or something which just reminds you of the person and i think that's okay that's part of the grief process and 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 then if you're somebody who's friend or colleague who's somebody has been bereaved, I think that's really difficult as well because sadly too often um, people who are bereaved report that people they know cross the road either actually or metaphorically cross the road. And part of that, if you're a bystander or a friend of somebody who's been bereaved is because often you don't know what they say because your biggest fear is you'll say the wrong thing or um, you'll, you'll upset the person or you'll make matters worse. And again, both Speaking to people who are bereaved, if you look at the research and sort of clinical literature, it all says, as long as you again treat the person, basically recognises this as a real trauma, just let them know that you're here for them. Mm-hmm. And so that you may be, so when everybody's different, the uniqueness is so important. So it might be that for some person, they want somebody there to, be, to, to chat to all the time. Other times they don't, they just want to know that there's somebody available. And then you just never know that, that that person might need you in an unexpected time. So as long as you have made it clear to the person, I'm here for you at any stage, and you're non-judgmental, and you don't try and tell the person how they should feel, of course. And again, it's similar to with you're speaking to somebody who is suicidal, the same way if you're speaking to somebody who's bereaved, it's that validation and compassion. And I think as long as you do those, you're unlikely to do any harm. So I would really encourage anybody who's, who is, knows somebody who's died, please reach out to them. Just reach a sense of human connection, a sense of compassion, and you're not going to do any harm.
1: I remember speaking to one family who um, the son had died by suicide and uh, they found this support groups were really helpful for other parents that had also been bereaved. And that was really, what you know, really helpful and they would dip in and out of that. So I, th- I think that is something also. Um, and I guess one of the other main questions, which I guess is, the one we've not come to yet is um, people will ask, well, why did they do it, you know? And I know it's a, it's a, very, it's a short answer, a short question, but a complex answer. Complex and, and I'm thinking particularly around um, so your thoughts on why people do it, but also there's probably ones that people can say, well, somebody was very unwell and depressed and low. But the ones that people really struggle with is when they say, actually, they seemed fine, you know, and we see that a lot in, and maybe touching upon, I guess, famous people that have died by suicide or celebrities, particularly. Um, one is what, how should we be? Because I know there's a lot of guidance of how you talk about these things as well, we need to be careful about that, but and we can't diagnose just from what we see. But there's people that were a lot, you know, I remember, um, you know, they're on TV and they're like. Seemed fine the night before on TV, and the friends said they seemed fine, and then, you know, they, they died by suicide. So, kind of just why you know people try to make sense of why it is, and how do you, do we ever get the answers? How do we kind of approach that question of why has this person yeah yeah died by suicide?
0: So I'll take that in two parts. We'll yeah. <clears throat> we'll do the sort of celebrity side of things second, but so if we take the first bit of that, which is why do people die by suicide? So the first thing is. I, and I often get asked this question from people who are bereaved by suicide and I understand why. They want to, can I help them understand why their particular loved one died by suicide? And, and nine times out of ten, I just can't tell them why. I, I don't know why an individual took their own life, of course, because um, I, I wasn't in the mind of that person, obviously. But the research that we do tries to understand that more broadly. And so one of the things I've done in, in my research is I've developed a model of suicide called the Integrated Motivational Volitional Model, which is a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) So we just call it the IMV model. And It's my attempt of trying to understand or answer that question, why do people die by suicide? And at the heart of the model is a very simple concept. And it is that, well, there's probably two or three simple concepts I would argue at the heart of it. So the first one is, I would argue that people become suicidal because, or when they feel trapped by mental pain, and that sense of entrapment is often driven by feelings of defeat and or humiliation. Now, of course, defeat and humiliation can also be triggered by rejection, by shame, or by loss. But at the heart of it, so when when somebody asks me the question, why do people die by suicide? I say it's because of, they're trapped by unbearable mental pain. And of course, it's the sources of that entrapment are unique to the individual. So for one person, it could be they've really been struggling with the consequences of early life trauma and they've been made unemployed, or their relationship's broken down, or they're experiencing bullying, or they've really severe and enduring mental illness and they're really struggling with that. But at the heart of it, the question then becomes, what, people become suicidal because they feel trapped, then it's about trying to understand the entrapment. And so that's advice I'd always give to somebody if you're, if, if you're trying to understand, and hopefully it's not when somebody's died because it's too late, but if somebody is expressing suicidal thoughts, it's trying to understand then what is, th- those suicidal thoughts will, uh, will have arisen out of this sense of entrapment, what's causing that entrapment? And, then, and that'll rarely be one answer, but it'll be multiple factors. So, so, yes, for example, in, you mentioned depression. Yes, we know that in Western countries, most people who die by suicide have a diagnosed mental health problem at the time of death or a history of one. But if you ask a different question, which is, and that's most commonly depression, right? But if you ask yourself a different question, which is, which is what percentage of people who are treated, say, in hospital for depression, what percentage of those die by suicide? So the answer to that question, is 4%. So then the question is, yes, we know mental health problems are important and we have to treat them. Untreated mental health problems, of course, are a risk factor for suicide. But that's not the reason people die by suicide. It's, it's not the mental illness itself, it's not the mental health problem itself, which is because most people with depression, 96% of people with depression don't kill themselves. So then, so, so, so for me, it's about recognizing suicide risk and understanding suicide is genuinely this interplay between biological factors psychological or clinical factors, and social context. Because the other thing we know is, sadly, there is a socio-economic gradient. People from more disadvantaged backgrounds are more likely to die by suicide. Three times in our country to die by suicide compared to those who are more, more affluent. But, but, that, but the point is, it's, it's trying to understand an individual in their context, understand their entrapments in the context in which they live. So for me, that's why I, I always try and answer that question.
1: And in my, putting my psychiatry hat on a little bit is, um, I think there's also, and and as you said, it's different for every individual. Um, Sometimes people will say it's quite a selfish act, you know, but actually when you speak to some people, it's quite altruistic because they feel actually they're a burden, you know, and that could be a flavor of their depression or some other kind of how they've lost hope, but they feel they're a burden on others and almost this will put them out of their pain, but put others out of their pain and they allow other family members to move on. So they kind of get into that frame of mind to say, actually, this will be better for me, you know, better for me, better for the family and the children, etc. And almost they convince themselves that is, and, and the reality is when you speak to the family, they would say, of course not, you know, but... um.
0: But that's such an, such an important point, because again, there's a whole section in my book I talk about what suicide is not. And... Um, top of that list is suicide is not selfish, and and exactly what you you've just said, I and mean, and but for me, if you think about the psychology of it, what we know is a person is often feeling a burden on those around them, often emotionally exhausted, especially in the context, say, of of uh, really struggling with depression or or whatever the mental health problem might be, and so the so the we also know that on top of that, what's so one of the characteristics of the suicidal mind is this idea of tunnel vision, or we call, it, we call it cognitive constriction. So you can't see alternatives. And you also can't see, so in a way you can't see alternatives to suicide as a way, because remember suicide is too often seen as a sort of permanent solution to or what are often seemingly temporary problems. And it's, uh, but that other consequence of that sort of tunnel vision is you can't see the impact the devastation that will be left left behind, and and you're also you're, if your self-esteem and your is so low, and actually if you, as you've just said, then there's that counterintuitive thing you think you're going to let, you're doing your loved ones a favour. So it is in the mind of the individual, are so it's like a seemingly altruistic act. So for me, that's really important to hold on to, especially the number of people I've met over the years who have really struggled for a period in their life, have been really acutely suicidal. Thought there would never be a time when they would be well again. Had all those sad thoughts about the world would be a better off place without the minute. The family would certainly be better off. And then years later, I've met them since, and those years later, they're they're living a fulfilled life. And they and they could not have seen those months or years previously that things could get better, and that they have. So if you are listening to this and you are struggling with suicidal thoughts and think they'll never end. They do. Suicidal thoughts are temporary. And most people who have suicidal thoughts make a full recovery. So please, please hold on. Absolutely.
1: And I guess the the other aspect is around celebrity. Um, And one is, firstly, what's the kind of guidance around how we talk about... When we talk about celebrity, we talk about famous people that we might know. Um, Because I guess there's concerns about... One is... uh, you know, commenting on something that we don't know about but also people worry about copycat things and then that you know does that, that lead to kind of cl- clusters of other people thinking you know tipping them over the edge to suicide so that kind of in that category of celebrity social media kind of people that you might not know directly what how do we kind of navigate that whole area of um, of suicide
0: yeah well i mean taking i think one of your bits that very quickly first is the thing about um there's too much armchair diagnosis going on, or armchair commenting on famous people, and I think that any no mental health professional who is um, worth their salt should be passing diagnoses and judgments on people they don't know and just on hearsay and what they're in the, on the media. But moving on to the the more sort of important point, I would argue over the is the impact of celebrity or famous deaths on suicide. The stark reality is that media reporting and inappropriate media reporting around suicide is associated with increased suicide risk in a public health context. And indeed, um, about four or five years ago, colleagues in Austria and Australia published a review to try and quantify the impact of celebrity reporting, or, or, or sorry, reporting of celebrity suicides. And their conclusion was that the rate of suicide increases by about thirteen percent in the in the, the weeks after right the, the media reporting of suicide. so it is a real phenomenon now to combat combat that impact of media reporting is there are media reporting guidelines and so if you're and this this holds for social media as well as um, for the traditional medias and um, and so basically. You should never, you should never, have very. Don't describe the deta- in detail the method of suicide. Don't glorify suicide. Don't reduce the causes of suicide to a single cause. Um, indeed, what you should be doing is promoting messages of hope. And so, um, so again, the and, and when you're talking about media reporting, uh, in in the newspaper, whatever it might be, always have associate helplines and, and and supports there. And and then. The social media stuff is more difficult to regulate, of course it is, but, um, but we're trying, so at different levels. So I'm also the president of the International Association for Suicide Prevention. And so we, along with other organizations, have media reporting guidance. And we've just recently, last year, updated the media reporting guidelines so, so they uh, take a better account of social media. And so although that it's much more difficult to do, I would encourage anybody before you post on social media, or on print media, or whatever it is, think very, very carefully and don't, please don't um, talk about the method of suicide, don't glorify. And this is not about, remember, this is not about us censoring people, it's not about censorship, it's about appro- appropriate reporting to save lives.
1: Um, it's interesting, when I was doing a bit of research for today, it was on YouTube, um, in certain talks and then a kind of warning, uh, not advice kind of pop-up comes up. So if you need help, you know, contact, you know, click this button. So I think there are some, a lot that the tech companies can do to kind of say, well, actually, if you're Googling things, searching things, then there are things. Well, we, we've been, to that end, actually, we've been
0: working with Google and um, in particular to try and, so what's the, how do we optimize the response when people are searching? So there's, so you obviously try and, um, promote sites which are um, helpful sites rather than dangerous sites, but also trying to think, can, can we promote more coping responses or better coping responses online? And so that's what we and others at the International Association for Suicide Prevention are working with Google and other organizations to do it because it's such an important area. Because we know, the other thing we know is that most people who die by suicide are not in contact with clinical services. So it's about, in the UK, it's about 30% of people are, are in contact With clinical services before they die, lots of them are obviously online searching for support and help. So if we can use Google and harness that media for the good, I think it's really important.
1: I guess thinking about the religious aspect of what impact does religion, particularly for this podcast and this audience of a lot of people, will be either Muslim or of ethnic minority, and I guess it's a wide anybody can listen to these sort of conversations. Um, Just in the last few weeks, there were so. There was the son of a very prominent religious scholar from Pakistan um, who died by suicide. And his family, so his, uh, his brother posted, I think there was a lot of rumours and, and speculation. So he did say, well, you know, his brother was depressed and died by suicide cause, to, to quell some of that. Um, but I think it shone a light for particularly a lot, a lot of people that work in mental health is one of the pervasive things is, but what's the connection between religion? So particularly, you know, we hear a lot in, in the Muslim community, well, uh, if you're depressed, if you have mental illness and if you have suicide, it must be because you're either, your connection with God is not strong or you're not good enough, you know, re, you're not religious enough or there's some sort of failure in your faith, which then leads you to have these, you know, th- these experiences. and. There's a lot of kind of try, you know, educate people around, you know, that's not the case know, the clinical diagnosis and illnesses. But I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts. And just to preface this as well, is that um, there's a prominent kind of uh, psychiatrist in Stanford, uh, Rania Awad, who is doing some work around suicide prevention in Muslim communities, particularly around trying to train religious leaders, etc. So I guess that idea of, do, what, what do, we, do you have any thoughts about that connection between being religious, um, religiosity, and I guess mental illness, but particularly suicide?
0: Yeah, no, I guess a really, it's a really challenging question actually. And if you look at the, first of all, if you maybe take a step back um, and look at what's the, uh, what's the data tell us in terms of rates of suicide in Muslim versus say non-Muslim countries. So there's an interesting sort of paradox. So if you look at the, there's a, a review, again, a few years ago, or no, a couple of years ago, um, or even last year, if my memory is correct, which reviewed all of the studies, uh, or looked at the suicide rates in, in, in uh, Muslim-majority countries and compared it to the global average for suicide. And what they found, again, which is, a, this has been a consistent finding, is that, broadly speaking, uh, rates of suicide are lower in Muslim um, majority countries. Now, not all of the countries, it was only the majority. But So, so that even on that sort of large scale level, there's still mixed evidence. Some Muslim countries, the suicide rates are higher, Muslim majority countries, the suicide rates are higher than the global average. And some, and in this case, the majority, they're lower. So that, the lower is what we've certainly, as a researcher over many years, that's what we've found. But, but again, the complexity is, well, why are the rates lower? Is it that they really are lower? Is it that, that people who, who um, are Muslim are less likely to kill themselves? And that uh, obviously is forbidden by Sharia Shira- law? Or is it that it's not reported? And so I think we're, we're not quite certain what the answer to that is. I think it's some combination of both. And then, but then the, the paradox is data from the United States just last year um, did a large survey and they looking at different religions in America. And what they found was this wasn't... In, in suicide deaths, this is on people who'd attempted suicide. And people who had attempted suicide, people who identified as Muslim, were twice as likely to have attempted suicide than the, the, ne- the next nearest group, which was people who identified as Protestant. So that's an interesting paradox. Um, now, Part of that complexity is to do with, it's one thing being a Muslim in America is very different from being a Muslim in a Muslim majority country. So it's trying to understand that context. Now, if we then broaden it out to the other ethnic minority communities, again, another review which was published uh, in the last year or so, again, looked at all the evidence for any studies which had, had given a breakdown for ethnic minority background and linked that to suicide. Again, there was some weak evidence that um, there was a slight increase in suicides among uh, different ethnic minority populations. But it wasn't consistent, very inconsistent. Some groups, it was much higher. Some groups, it was much lower. And indeed whites, people that identify white, were, was, were also one of the high groups. And then actually, but what did emerge from, and this is now something which has been followed up in the UK, is people who identify, identify as mixed heritage, their rates of suicide seem to be higher and whites, for example, and and other other groups. And, uh, and so, the, so that's really interesting, because then it's trying to understand, well, what is, what's going on there? Is it, you know, I know that's not directly linked to religiosity, but it's something to do with your identification. What is your identity, your sense of belonging? And is there something that, there's, that, that is compromised in some way? And you know, the, uh, so we need to look at that in much more detail because that's really, really important. And then the other group, in terms of ethnic minority background, are indigenous peoples. So again, there's quite a lot of really consistent evidence now that indigenous communities in in numerous countries throughout the world are reporting higher rates of suicide than non-indigenous people. And that's when we think of the explanation for that, again, it's complex, it's linked to colonialism, it's linked to structural racism, it's linked to lack of services and supports for those who are vulnerable. And indeed, if we look then, more maybe closer to home in the UK context. There's also evidence that people from black and minority ethnic populations are less likely to get mental health support. They get less good quality mental health support. So it's a really complicated thing. Now, i come back then to your question about religiosity. Again, the evidence is mixed. There's some evidence definitely that religiosity, not just for uh, Islam, Muslim, Muslim individuals, but for other religions, religiosity can be protective, but similarly, it can be a risk factor as well. So I so suppose my take home is we have to really take a much more individual approach to this and understand the individual in their context. And then just one last thing on this broader issue to do with um, sort of st- national stigma, or stigmatization around mental health, is that suicide sadly in 20 countries in the world suicide's still a criminal offence. I think it's 40 countries, then if you then include, broaden that out to countries in where suicide is forbidden under Sharia law. Now, as the International Association for Suicide Prevention, we advocate very, very strongly for decriminalisation of suicide. And working with partners, and not just us, other organisations, there's a really important um, international organisation called Lifeline International, who just last week, or two weeks ago, wants this big campaign around decriminalization of suicide. And but part of that work is to work with local religious leaders. So because it's trying to understand how people interpret um, their religion, how we, how we explain mental health problems. And what, what they're trying to do is provide resources to support religious uh, leaders, support parliamentarians or other politicians, all who are, who are involved, so we can create the circumstances much fewer countries and my hope and aspiration is in my lifetime we live in a world where no countries criminalise suicide because criminalisation of suicide does not prevent suicide it just leads to, to more people suffering less people seeking help so we all should be doing whatever we can to tackle that
1: and i think within the muslim community um i'm very mindful because i think even there's probably a lot of work to be done that we need to have we think about is with religious leaders, etc., because one of the examples that I know is uh, is particularly uh, in terms of carrying out the funeral rites and the funeral prayer, because it is considered something that is not um, permitted in the religion, is that some people might not, you know, uh, some mosques or some religious leaders might not feel comfortable or or refuse to do it, and the impact that then that has on the wider family and. But I think there's also an understanding that even there's a principle within Islamic religion that if you're so unwell, for example, that you lose capacity to make rational decisions, et cetera, then you're actually absolved of your actions, you know, if you're mentally infirm or, you know, you got intellectual disability. And, and I guess when I see very severe depression, et cetera, I would argue that, You know, they're not making rational decisions sometimes, you know. So, I think there's a bit about education and awareness and how we deal with all of that. But I'm very conscious of your time, Rory, as well. So, I just wanted to mention it, just something maybe we can follow up. So, we know in terms of maternal suicide, the area that I'm particularly involved in, that the first year after um, having a baby is the leading cause of why women are dying, you know, um, is maternal suicide and and the risk profile slightly different. And and I think that's something that certainly we should be aware of. Um, And I just wanted to come on to the idea of prevention. Um, And I guess starting off with this fundamental thing is, you know, is every suicide preventable? Is that something that we should say, or do we always accept that we'll be, you know, is, is trying to get numbers down? Or do we say, actually, is, is every suicide preventable? Can something be done? Um, and I know it's a hard.
0: Yeah, no, that's it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated question. But for me, I'm still, I'm definitely of the belief that every death is potentially preventable right up until the very last moment. But the challenge is, um, so in the in the United States there's this movement called the zero suicide movement, and it's a laudable aspiration. And the aspiration is there should be no suicides in the world. And of course, if I had a magic wand, if such a thing existed, I would I would wish no suicides in the world. But the challenge you have if you if you set that as an aspiration, is especially in a healthcare setting, that if a suicide occurs, then it's seen as it's, it's framed as who's to blame for that death. And people often feel, clinicians, whoever it might be, um, feel that they've done something wrong. Now, it's really important we learn from all deaths, so I'm not saying, we, of course, anytime, if there's ever a death in the health setting, we have to learn from it, we have to understand it, But but we need to change the culture. So the culture genuinely is about learning rather than about blame, and so, so when, I, when, so when that question you say, should we do, have this aspiration of no suicides? Yes, that's my aspiration, but there are, there are consequences of it. And the other thing is, if you, say, if you say zero suicide, family members feel they failed as well, and I don't think that's fair or helpful. So in, the, in Scotland, we, we published our 10-year Suicide Prevention Strategy and Action Plan, and we've deliberately deliberately not included a percentage. We said we want a reduction in suicides and we also want a reduction in the inequalities that lead to suicide and so for me that's my i want to prevent as many suicides as death one suicide is one suicide too many but we need to be careful how we frame it
1: and what are your kind of take home messages then for people that are maybe thinking about suicide or uh, that cusp or have tried suicide and for friends and family that are, know somebody that is suicidal, what's your kind of key messages people should always keep in mind based on your many, many years of experience and expertise?
0: So, <clears throat> if you're in the depths of a suicidal episode and, and you feel the, that there is no hope, you feel trapped, um, it can be really difficult to see beyond the time when things will be better. But please please hold on because I can tell you from years and years of experience those times do pass the suicidal thoughts do relent so please hold on now if you have somebody who said a long history of mental health problems and and you've been seeking different treatments and they don't work please keep trying because again the number of times it's like anything else it's we have to try things some things work for some of us some things work for others so if you've You've tried one treatment or support and it hasn't worked. There will be another option out there. So always try and remember that when you're in a suicidal crisis, the mind's playing tricks on you, it's trying to get you tunnel vision and you're focused in on suicide as a, as a solution to your problems. Suicide is never the solution, and that if it's, and I know it's, it's, it can be difficult to see. Please keep trying. Please keep trying. And um, and if you don't think you can keep yourself safe, please reach out for help because I also think that everybody who's suicidal should have a safety plan. And that for those of you who are less familiar with what a safety plan is, it's a very simple intervention. We've done some work on it here in Glasgow. It's got six steps. Step one is you try and, and it's usually co-created with a clinician or somebody, somebody else, but you try and work together with the person who's in crisis to identify the warning signs that a suicide crisis might be escalating. So the next time you become Suicidal, you identify the warning signs and then you can implement the the rest of the the, of the safety plan So I said there's six steps. That's step one and then steps two, three, four and five Are all around either identifying people activities or places that you can use or go to um, For either to distract you from the suicidal distress or the crisis that is escalating, or where you can go for help, including emergency support, if you think you can not keep yourself safe. And that emergency support could be a mental health professional, it could be a helpline, it could be your GP, but it could also crucially be a friend or family member. And then step six is, the, of the safety plan is, working again so t- together to agree to keep your environment safe. And by keeping your environment safe, I mean, often, people have set on a particular method of suicide when they're in a crisis. And so with that, keeping the environment safe, it's trying to increase the distance, either actually environmentally or psychologically, between you and that method of suicide. So that when you're in that moment of acute crisis, you don't act on your thoughts. And for me, that's so, so important. And we've done years of work that anything you can do which can interrupt those suicidal thoughts can save your life. So please, please hold on.
1: No, that's amazing, amazing advice, Rory, and thank you. And certainly, I'll post um, resources, etc., on the episode notes. Um, I'd like to end on this final quote. It was an article I sent you, and it goes back to um, a friend of mine and his son, who's given. He's written this uh, blog post publicly, and I think it probably brings everything together. So. Um, his name is Brother Inayat and his son Adam died by suicide just before he was 21. And the first kind of, you know, line of his blog was, I failed to recognize the seriousness of the warning signs in my son Adam in time. And then he goes on to say why he wrote that post is the continuing controversy surrounding suicide in parts of society and particularly religious communities is not helpful and can only worsen the sense of hopelessness that many suffering from mental illness feel, not to mention causing additional pain to the families of the bereaved who are already grieving deeply. Researchers say that the vast majority of cases of suicide involve some type of severe mental illness such as depression and or anxiety. We need to try and view depression and anxiety in a similar way to how we view cancer and provide the necessary support, focus and resources in order to help treat it. And then he goes on to quote from your book. He says, for the most part, uh, you wrote in your book, for the most part, we are reluctant to talk about suicide and frightened to ask someone whether they are suicidal or not. This has to change. It is crucial that we promote the conversation around suicide so that more people will feel less alone and get the help and support that they require. So thank you so much, Rory. Um, uh, Really, really appreciate your time. Would really encourage people to you know, look into your work. You know, read your book as well. I don't know if you've got any other books in the offing, or and you do podcasts as well, so your people can find you. I know, you, you
0: know. And if you go to our we- our website, suicideresearch.info, all of our research is there.
1: And you're very prolific on Twitter, etc. So it's at suicide research, isn't it? Um, any final thoughts or comments, surely? No, just
0: th- just thank you, and I think it's really important we have these conversations, especially across different populations and and people with different religious backgrounds, because. How we understand and support people who are suicidal is different depending on which cultural background and religious affiliation you have. So it's really important we have these wide, wide wide-ranging conversations. So thank you so much for for inviting me on.
1: Right, Thank you, Rory, and wish you all the best and keep up with the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Bye-bye.